more than 2,000 miles, we've road tested a slew of tech and want to tell you about what held up, what failed, what we loved, and what has to go. The good and the bad of the tech. And that was Brent's best cowboy right there. You did good, Brent. Yeehaw. <laughs> Yeehaw! <laughs> so we had some some things that worked. We had some things that didn't work on this road trip. And it really was, we're stomping all over the West. And so it really does put things through their paces because we decided like idiots to do it while it's hot too. Very hot, apparently. I uh, had to change even my measurement instrument kind of uh, units <laughs> really? of measurement yeah. to yeah. appreciate the heat. And now you know. You know now. I mean, it was like today it was 93 degrees, but of course the... RV is a box in the sun. It's a metal box. So it gets really, really warm. So you're really constantly fighting it. And so stuff got stress tested. And we thought we'd talk about some of the things that worked. And let's start with the, we got like a couple of sections. So let's start with the tech in the RV itself. And then we'll talk about some of our podcasting tech and that kind of stuff. But the RV tech is probably the biggest area. Enough so that when Brent came on board, when we were still back in the Seattle area, we had to give him a tour of the tech. We have the most important thing on the tour, of course. Uh, so this one is much like the system in the studio, but a little more. <laughs> so you have lights you can turn on and off. So if you were here or not, in fact, you know what we could do if you wanted to is you could make a bookmark on your phone. So that way you could turn off some lights up front or something like that if you That's wanted a, to. Yeah, that would be great. Um, and then there's a lot of like just quick access right here. So this has kind of been more designed for the family. So you have a little bit of weather information, lots of goes, temperature information, interior temperatures, that's humidity, cool. and yeah. And then there's other weird things we can pull in here too. Like we can we can pull in the pie hole stats, and we can see <laughs> this is fun. So there's 36, 36 active network clients right now in the RV. Okay. That's not bad for an RV, yeah, right? Not bad at all. This one, there's not a lot going on because um, most of the cameras are down, but some of the cameras you can pull them in here, uh, but they're they don't record. Um, and they're mostly, mostly offline. Motion sensor information, but again, none of that's really all that relevant. What you're going to really care about would just be stuff on that tab. That's all that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you got you got them all labeled: so bedroom oil heater and extra heat. Little icons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, little icons. This is this is basically like the same kind of tablet that we have at the studio, only just the bigger version. Yeah. Great. And then this is just a little turn off. A power button, know, just so we know where it is. Got yeah. It. That's all in Home Assistant, which is running on a Raspberry Pi 4, and it does things beyond just some of the basics, like it does some of our automation in the heating and cooling system, at nighttime and morning automations, temperature and humidity monitoring throughout the RV. It's sort of like the central brain of what's going on in the RV. I really loved it because I could just sort of sneak back there every once in a while when I got curious and see how all the systems are doing and... Mostly I was curious about the temperature of the little compartment up here that yeah. holds all the electronics. Yeah, yeah. Watching that as we're going down the road was tricky. And then the server room, if you will. Yeah, it is. It is. Also in that server room is uh, a Plex instance running on that Raspberry Pi. And I do a little refresh of the TV and the movies for the road trip before we go. So we put like the mummy on there, the, 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 you know, all of them. <laughs> and uh, updated some TV shows for the kids so that way they'd have something to watch on the land when we're going through the passes where we might not have connectivity. And then another thing that I do is I run a local sync thing instance. And then, Brent, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but I also run an instance in the studio. No surprise there. And I run an instance up in the cloud on Linode. And what I do is I kind of co-sync stuff between those two things. So I can pull down a file from the Linode server and a file from the studio server 
at the same time. And the way my router will balance it sometimes is I'm using different carriers to pull from different servers. So I can actually slam quite a bit of data onto and take data off of the RV servers that way. Yeah, I've been actually really impressed even in just the everyday browsing. Uh, I know I was doing a little bit of work, which usually I'm running through my you know cell phone and has a single source, but it was really behaving nicely. I, I know you've got this, well, you call it your fuse kind of tunnel. Yeah, fusion tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, well, it all really is made possible by my PepWave. I have a PepWave Max Transit, and that's bringing in a couple of carriers together. And then it creates, as an option, a bonded VPN that bonds those carriers into one connection. And then it is constantly monitoring the latency and performance of the different cellular providers and figuring out what is the best route for traffic and whatnot. And so if there is signal to be had, because the antenna is mounted on the roof and it's you know it's a pretty strong antenna, if there is signal to be had, that system will load balance it. But then another part of my philosophy around making cellular connectivity feel faster is to use little tricks whenever you can to not use the cellular connection. <laughs> so if you can have something on the LAN, like DNS, or the files that you're looking for, or a local cache, then you don't need to go out to the LTE connection. So an example of that is we have Pi-hole running here. We have a dedicated Raspberry Pi that just runs Pi-hole, and it also is, the as a function of that, it is the DHCP server of the network. And that that serves as blocking at the network level a whole bunch of like banner ads and junk and tracking scripts that we just don't need to waste network traffic with. I would imagine with the number of devices running here at any one time while we're rolling down the road, that probably saves quite a bit of bandwidth. Do you have any idea of, of kind of how many ads or any, any kind of metric around that? I do get a lot of metrics from the pie hole box. It's surprising because, you know, every little stinking box, every little smart box or IOT device, they all love to phone home. And the pie hole blocks a ton of those. Um, like, so right now it looks like there are 98,000 domains on the block list. And out of the queries that we've done in a 24 hour period, it's blocked 5,499. It's, it's working. Yeah. And that's stuff that would never have, you know, that's all that's 5,000, that's six, almost 5,500 requests that would have gone out over the network. And can I ask why you have this on a dedicated box, a uh, little pie, but you have a bunch of other stuff running on a single other pie? Mm -hmm. Network services, you know, like DHCP and DNS, um, I want them to be online when the other systems are rebooting. And so I can reboot the Home Assistant pie that also has Plex and SyncThing and, and Duplicati and um, <laughs> a bunch of other services that measure network latency and stuff like SmokePing. And, uh, anyways, I can run all of that on one pie. And if I keep the network services on a separate box, then I can reboot them independently and they don't affect each other really. And so when I, and when I restart the pie that has all of the different services on there, when it comes back online, I want DHCP and I want DNS to all be available for those services. So I've done the, I've done the power math and decided to, you know, spend the power on another pie. And I say that quite seriously, because if you think about it, these things run 24 seven. And so even if they're only pulling, you know, 15, 20 watts or whatever it is, it's a tiny amount for these Raspberry Pis. Um, it adds up 24-7, and it means less runtime on our batteries. And a big special thank you to Linode for making this road trip possible, for helping with the reunion, and for literally putting gas in our tank. Go to colonytracker.live to get $100 in credit at Linode. It's how we host everything. 
mentioned, well, you didn't quite mention solar, but I think you were headed in that direction there. There was some implications of solar, I think. There yeah. was some power saving. I'm curious to know what you place. think, because I've kind of normalized li- living off grid now, as weird as that sounds. Uh, I'm used to doing like the power dance to make sure we're not using too much power and to keep an eye on the batteries. But yeah, we've got about um, 1,300 watts of solar up on the roof of Lady Jupes. That comes into 600 amp hours of Battleborn lithium batteries. And then there's a Victron inverter charge controller system that manages all of that. And uh, I love it. To me, it is like my one of my favorite things about the RV. You know, while we were in Denver, we were parked for eight days off grid. Eight days of running off of battery and solar. Uh, thankfully, it was unbelievably hot. And there was a lot of lot of solar radiation that the RV could soak up. <laughs> but I'm curious from your perspective, because, uh, I mean, not only was this sort of like your first road trip around uh, America's West, but I imagine it's probably one of your first solar-powered road trips as well. It really is. And I've been curious before, but never had the hands-on experience. Uh, and I think what's interesting is that perspective you talked about, which is that you're like in the nuts and bolts of all these systems. And I'm really just coming in turnkey and uh, operating the stuff. And so I think one thing I found really interesting was um, having to learn what watts matter. I didn't really care before because I never had to. But all of a sudden when you're on solar and when you have that fancy display that you've got there that shows sort of where all the power is routing, uh, it was really neat to watch. But also it makes you care about what you're consuming. So we've been very, very careful about when to run the toaster oven, you know. The other thing that's been a challenge on this trip, like it was in our Texas trip, is managing the heat because inverting a lot of power, say, to run the air conditioning generates a lot of heat. And then where the batteries are at, which is in the lower chassis area of the RV, that's near the drivetrain, which when you're driving down the road and it's 100 degrees outside, generates a lot of heat. And so it turns out that we kept finding ourselves in these positions where we were managing temperature states way more than I'd like to. And so definitely one of the things that is on my mind now is how to get some sort of automated cooling system into that battery bay that doesn't expose it to the elements of outside and um, doesn't damage anything by installing it, but is a way that I can flip a switch on the dash or have Home Assistant kick in when a certain temperature is reached and start cooling it. Because there were times when it was 100 degrees out and we couldn't run our air conditioning because the combination of the heat outside plus the recent driving um, and the in, the inversion load meant it was too much heat generated. That's a pain in the butt. You mentioned this dance that you were doing, and I remember some of the, the stops that we made on the side of the road at these rest stops. And it was almost more stressful for you to be stopped than driving mm-hmm. because of that balance between heat from, you know, the concrete that we were on, but also the heat the engine's producing, the heat the inverters are producing, the heat that's in the RV, and then you've got the uh, air conditioning to try to kind of balance all that. So you were just... While the sun's beating down on you. It is a lot. And uh, when you're, at least when you're going, when you're moving, the alternator is generating some current. uh, So it's, you're not, you're not inverting very much and you're generating power and you can turn on the dash air conditioning. (laughs) So thankfully, every now and then we could get somewhere. We could we could fire up the generator. And if we bypassed charging the batteries and if we bypassed inverting power from the batteries and just took it from the generator, we could run the air conditioning because there was no inversion. There was no charging. It was just straight generator power to air conditioning. And that worked. 
But you can only do that in certain circumstances. So it was a lot. The power system overall, though, in terms of what it's designed to do, which is power the RV and keep us going, it performed exceptionally well, actually. I mean, the temperature, the heat stuff is, I mean, it's 100 degrees outside, and it's right next to the engine and the transmission and all that kind of stuff. So there are there are things I could do to improve the thermal situation, but at the end of the day, when it's so hot outside and you're inverting 3,000 watts of power <laughs> to run two air conditioners, you're just running into a physics thing there. Um, but as far as like those Battleborn batteries, they held up. I mean, you know, we'd go park somewhere at night and um, we wouldn't really worry about it. We would just run our noisemakers and have our televisions on and lights on. And we'd, we'd be sitting outside in the parking lot wherever we were at watching TV on the outdoor television, all running off of battery, pretty much knowing that the next day we'd get enough solar and drive time to charge it all back up. You know, I think I was just thinking I never once worried about running out. And I think that just says that you guys are experts at uh, managing all these systems. Never once did we go what, under like 30 percent or anything like that, even overnight. So I think I think we did pretty good. Now, let's talk about something you could use in any vehicle, and I think it is criminal that they're not, it's not, this information isn't just already displayed on larger vehicles, but when I'm going down the road, or especially when I'm climbing passes, I'd like all the data. I want to know what my intake air temperature is, I want to know what my coolant temperature is, I want to know what my cylinder head temperatures are, I want to know what my transmission temperature is, I want to know if my engine's misfiring, I want to know what my brake temperatures are, right? I want to know all the data. And the thing is, it's very frustrating about this is a lot of car computers have all this information. They're just not showing it to you. And that is inexcusable when you're operating a 25,000 pound vehicle. You need that information. And that's why I got this little ODB2 plug. Mine's called the VP01, the V-Peak, V-E-E-Peak. And you plug it into the ODB2 port of your vehicle's computer. It creates a Wi-Fi network. You join... They recommend an iOS device, but you can use an Android device as well. You join that Wi-Fi network. You're the only device on that network, right? And then you launch an app, a reader app. In my case, I use ODB Fusion, which is fantastic, and it really lets you customize the hell out of it. It connects. That app connects. It reads all the computer PIDs, all the things that the computer is capable of relaying, and then it allows you to build a series of dashboards of temperature gauges and recreate all of the stuff this should be just built into the damn dashboard. And I have an iPad Pro that mounts onto my dash. And then all of that information comes streaming into my iPad. And I can monitor so much stuff with that that it is, I think, an absolutely essential part of my driving. And it's just nuts that you don't have it in there. And so I totally recommend these. They also have Bluetooth models, depending on what you need. Then those work with a wider range of devices. You just if you don't if you don't have anything in there now, you can plug this into your ODB2 port and get all this information, including diagnostic information if there's ever air codes and stuff. I was really impressed when I saw this dashboard, and uh, you and I just were kind of staring at it for a while, just taking in all the information. I think for for people like us who generally like Linuxy things, this <laughs> I love dashboards. <laughs> this speaks to us, but yeah. just that. I I think you would agree with this. Just the more information you can get about the rig the more you can understand how to better operate the rig and to make it last longer. Yep. Yeah, I, my goal when I'm driving this thing is not to be stressing out the engine a whole bunch because I want it to last, and uh, that information makes it vital. We also have a live tracker on board. This uses OwnTracks that runs on a Linode instance, and that is where we generate the embeddable web page, and it does all of the logging. 
And then there is an OwnTracks client that runs on my Android device that updates over HTTP anytime the Android OS detects what they call significant movement. <laughs> Did we define that yet? I don't think so, but I think it's basically when it gets moved. Um, you can also turn on precise motion tracking, and that's been awesome. People have used that to track us down, and we've done micro meetups, as we call them, with folks, and they use the live map. And I just turn it on and set it and forget it. You know, as long as the Android device is powered up and OwnTracks is running in the background, it's logging our location in real time. And OwnTracks supports, you could have multiple vehicles, you could do this. You, everyone in your family could have that if, if that's your thing. You don't have to use it to actually make the information public. <laughs> that's just what we do. <laughs> You want to talk about audio gear? Because that's really the whole reason we're here. I, yeah. mean, I see a lot of it right in front of you now. We haven't gotten any, any of our failures, and unfortunately, this is where the ugly part comes in. For the first time ever, our handy Zoom H4 portable recorders gave us various problems. Yeah, this was on, I think, night number one, even. We were uh, trying to record some stuff and thinking about how the rest of the trip would be recorded and setting ourselves up. And... I think to our surprise, one of the ports was really, really, really noisy uh, to the point where we just had to stroke it off the list for the rest of the trip. And I think you were pretty disappointed about that. Yeah. And then the other Zoom that we had was having SD card problems. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Haven't had file system problems on SD cards in a while, but sure enough, it wouldn't even format it. Nope. And, and we put different ones in there. Oh, it was stressful, actually. We were worried it was starting to actually oh. wreck the SD card. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's just no oh, good. Uh, but uh, what did work out really well is once we got basically one good working by 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 connecting the, I guess Frankensteining the two of them together, you could say. Uh, but what worked really well with them was our Sennheiser MD46 mics. They just rocked loud environments. Yeah, this is a microphone that we ended up choosing for my voice for some of the recordings that I've been doing, the brunches and all of the stuff for Linux Unplugged. Uh, but it turns out this is a really great microphone for on-location stuff. And did we ever put it to its paces? Uh, we put, yeah. we tested it in System 76's sort of production active environment, factory, factory noises, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. ovens, and like loud mills and stuff. And it performed wonderfully, not to mention uh, the meetup that we had in Denver. I thought that was going to... Well, I, mean, I wasn't even... There was live music. There was, there was I mean, 90, 90 in our group, and then probably another couple of hundred people that were just there having a good time. Yeah, you and I were... Um, our voices were super tired after that event because we had to just keep them at a high pace to try to have people hear us. But listening back to the, some of the recordings that we made, and they're very surprisingly clear. So this microphone started shining for us. Yeah, if you ever need a mobile microphone, you can throw in your bag. You can you can count on it in noisy environments. The MD46 is it. We are in a noisy environment right now. You can probably hear some of it in the background. We're we're still here in Colorado. We're at a campground, and we're, this is just one of the last things we're recording before we head out. And even for an environment like this, it works pretty well, and Brent and I are sitting next to each other. But in the RV, um, you know, that setup was really simple and effective. It's like a, a portable recorder and a microphone. Maybe we throw in a phone every now and then if we need to capture some B-roll audio or something. But in the RV, that's where we're doing the big shows, right? We're doing the live streaming. We're doing the day-to-day -day production stuff. So in the RV, we have RE320 microphones. Although when Brent's here, he actually still uses the MD46 because he sounds great with it. I prefer my microphone. Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, I have a Rode Procaster mixer that is a really slick four-channel mixer that also brings in USB, uh, phone audio, and Bluetooth in just the coolest way possible. And it has a built-in soundboard, which is a lot of fun for me. The only downside to that is the Linux support sucks pretty bad. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> oh. You can get it as a stereo device, but for a for a, you know, a 40-day road trip or whatever it's going to be, I'm not I'm only halfway through it right now, so I'm not sure, but uh, but for a long road trip, you need something that's multi-track. So that way you're on your own track, the soundboard, remote people. And so I I did all the math I could and realized, all right, for this trip, my fastest best machine is going to be a MacBook. And I, this is the first time I've gone on a long trip like this where I just brought – I brought my ThinkPad, but it's not set up in any way to do remote broadcast. It's, in, it's, it's just in a rough shape. The install's in a rough shape, and it doesn't do the multi-track with the Rode Procaster. However, that meant that I took essentially an untested weapon into battle. I'm pausing because that makes my sort of blood boil a little bit. It makes me very <laughs> uncomfortable. It was a dumb thing to do, Brent. And, well, I – how did it go? Let's start there. The first couple of weeks were really frustrating um, because I think the Mac, when you don't use it a lot, it does a lot of stuff when it first boots up. And when you're on limited connectivity, it doesn't have an opportunity to do all that stuff. And so it just stretched it out over days. And I would be sitting here trying to do a Coda Radio or a Linux Unplugged Live, and it's using up all of my available bandwidth, syncing stuff in the background, copying files, processing faces and photos, like just all this stuff. I, like I just kept sitting here thinking, if this was a Linux box, I could kill these processes or they just would never happen, right? They just would never be going on. And it was driving me nuts. And I, I ultimately ended up through a combination of removing some stuff, turning off some settings and installing a local firewall and then just denying outbound access. <laughs> <laughs> Madman, I managed to get it under control after two weeks, and now it's doing pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's fine. What really saves it is I can still use Reaper to record the audio, so that's really nice because that's the same app I would be using on Linux, but it gets the multi-track support. The MVP of the setup is the iPad Pro, surprisingly, because it has its own LTE connectivity. It can do a bunch of stuff on there that doesn't affect our remote connection, and when bandwidth is tight, that really matters. Additionally, it can act as a second monitor to the MacBook, so I can actually throw Windows from the Mac over there, but I can also bring up chat rooms, I can bring up our Restream dashboard, I can bring up mixer controls via WireGuard from the Studio Mixer, and then I have uh, this iPad mounted on a stand that puts it floating above my physical mixer. So I have my local physical mixer in front of me, and then on the iPad floating in the air, I have a software version of the Studio's mixer, which I use while we're live and that setup has just killed it because the iPad's on its own connection. It's not taking any bandwidth. And I can use it to remotely control a mixer in Seattle while I'm in Colorado. The little buttons move in the studio, too. There's yeah, no one there were, to see it. Yeah, if you were there, you'd see the, you, the, the motorized sliders and stuff. It's so great. And WireGuard's a big part of that, too. And I know WireGuard's work has been really critical for you as well. Yeah, I, uh, you know, in my travels, I'm always thinking about all the random networks that I'm connecting to. I will say, typically, I like to connect to just one cell network, the one, you know, that I usually use a Ting SIM card in my phone. But for some reason, this trip, that has not worked very well for me. And you saw me suffer, Chris. I was trying to connect to any sort of cell towers I could, and I was just failing all the time. Um, now, I don't really have 
much equipment to do anything about that. But thankfully, there's Wi-Fi networks all over. And that makes me really nervous because I don't like connecting any of my devices to networks that I don't really know. So I have a WireGuard server uh, that I simply use for just like this situation, VPN connecting so that I can tunnel out of somewhere into a place that I feel a little bit better. In my case, it's in Toronto, so feels close to home. And uh, having that on all my devices and work flawlessly has been quite amazing. So thank you, WireGuard. Yeah, being able to have the same VPN on mobile and on my desktop and on my servers is just so, so great. And I'm thankful that the iOS WireGuard app is decent, and I'm thankful that WireGuard is so good on Linux. Uh, I have a WireGuard instance that runs up at Linode that I can connect to, which is what I use for browsing and just trying to like get a different online presence to avoid carrier smashing, which sometimes with some of our VoIP software carrier smashing really messes with our connectivity. And if I route through a WireGuard tunnel up to Linode, I can get out to their general internet. And guess what? All of a sudden, it's problem-free. Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And then I have a WireGuard server running at the studio, obviously, which is how I get in to control the mixer or operate with the server there in the studio, which I connect to about once a day and do some stuff. And that has been fantastic. And then what I'll do is if it's something that's like a lot of files, I batch process that offsite with sync thing. I don't transfer that over WireGuard, like through whatever SCP or whatever. I throw that on the th- on the sync thing server, and that takes its time as, as bandwidth is available and, and sends it all off. And, you know, that's that's been pretty handy because there has been times where we've captured a whole bunch of footage or a whole bunch of audio, and you need a way that's reasonable to get it off of your system and offsite that doesn't crush your LTE connection. And so little tricks like that have been really nice. Kind of bringing it all together has really, I think, been the secret sauce of this trip. It's a lot of moving pieces, I think, even more so than all the systems that run the RV. Uh, but that's those are the systems that allow us to get the work done. And yeah. I've been impressed to watch you juggle oh, all of man. those systems. Oh, man. It's been a lot for this trip, just because of the heat and a lot of tearing up, tearing down and setting up stuff and... A lot of moving, moving and every, you know, every few days we're moving. If, if not days in a row, we're moving. I think it's been a good test of your systems because you've had to tear them up or build them up and tear them down. And you've come, I think even tonight, you've come to a slightly better version That's of your true. setup. Yeah. Every time we kind of iterate a little bit. <sighs> yeah. It's, it's one of those things like just by the time you're almost done doing it, you become an expert. <laughs> you got to do it more. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's so much more we could talk about. We have more specials from the road that we have planned soon on our West Coast expedition. Of course, Brent and I are going to wrap it up here, and my road trip continues on. But we hope that you found this fascinating, interesting, or at least educational. Let us know on Twitter. I'm at Chris LAS. And I'm at Brent Jervis. 